What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris, and we got another fantastic author for you today. He's an author and a journalist, mainly journalist, just wrote a book. But anyways, it is Joe Cohane. All right, so check it out. This episode pairs perfectly with yesterday's episode with Tom Nichols. So yesterday we were talking with Tom Nichols about his book, Our Own Worst Enemy. And it's just about how we are just screwing up democracy and there's polarization and differences between you know age groups and all of that. But a huge, huge, huge part of the problem is polarization right? Like we are so polarized. And, you know, even though I, I only got into politics around like 2016, like I know, I know, like for most of my life, it wasn't this bad, right? So Joe Cohane, his book is the, 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 the Power of Strangers, okay? And yeah, like, you know, I, I was thinking about it and, you know, there's so much like I, I've I'm at, I think, 80 episodes now. I read so many books. A lot of them are, you know, uh, very positive, but some of them, you know, we're talking about, you know, polarization and just all these other things. And sometimes, you know, it's like, uh, you know, even with like critical thinking books that I like to cover, I'm always thinking of like, you know, the anti-vax stuff or people not wearing masks or people believing in conspiracies and all that. But anyways. I've read a lot of great books, a lot of, you know, uplifting books, but I got to say, I got to say this book, The Power of Strangers from Joe Cohane, like I was like, yes, like it just put a smile on my face. Uh, it's a fantastic book and Joe is a great writer. And like we talk a little bit about it in this conversation, but yeah, Joe went and talked to a ton of strangers. But in this conversation, like we, we, we asked the questions like, you know, why is it so difficult for us to talk to strangers? And I'm telling you, I am somebody who struggled with social anxiety for most of my life. It still flares up every now and then. I'm very introverted, but a huge part of, you know, when I got sober in 2012 and just a regular practice for my own mental health and well-being, I have to talk to strangers. It's been so beneficial. And Joe's book has a ton of research as well as, you know, different experiments he did. And, you know, he met with people, interviewed a ton of people, and it's a really interesting book. But anyways, like, I think, I think at our core, we know, we know for a fact, like it's important to talk to strangers, but there's all sorts of irrational fears and all this other stuff. Uh, you know, uh, Joe and I, we talk about the, the stranger danger thing that like went on and, you know, we're worried about our kids talking to strangers and all that. And, you know, many of you know, I'm a father, right? If my son, if my son gets lost, I need that fool to talk to strangers. You know what I mean? But anyways, anyways, I, I love talking with Joe. Uh, I, I could talk to him forever about this stuff, but yeah, there's so many great solutions, you know, from the book and we, we cover a lot of them in this conversation. So I really hope you guys enjoy it. And I hope you head down to the, the description down below. Make sure you are following Joe over on Twitter. I've linked his website, but most importantly, grab a copy of his book. It is, it is such a great book. And I'll, I'll end with this before we jump into the episode. All right. Because like, I feel, I feel like this is a hard sell. I feel like it's a hard sell saying, Hey, go talk to strangers. All right. But anyways, one of the most important, valuable things that I've learned. Okay. Is it's not about what I want to do. It's about what I need to do. You know what I mean? And something I need to do is not isolate. I need to, you know, talk to people and stuff like that. And yeah, and Joe puts it out perfectly of why it's so beneficial. All right. So listen to this whole episode, get sold on it. And, and speaking of talking to strangers, 
you should talk to me. All right. So down in the description, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. They're linked down below. Okay. But anyways, anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Joe Cohen about his brand new book, the power of strangers. All right. Hello, Joe. How you doing today? Great, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on. It's like yeah. to be here. Thanks for coming on. I love the book. And today we're here to talk about your new book, The Power of Strangers. So Great. before we, we jump into some of the topics from this awesome book, I, I, I always like to ask, like, what, what inspired you to sit down and write this book? Or even like, you know, you, you researched it and investigated it. Like, where'd the idea come from like where did you notice anything or or how'd that go yeah yeah so um so basically a few years ago i had this realization uh one day that i had pretty much just stopped talking to strangers not only stopped talking to strangers but kind of like going out of my way to avoid talking to strangers and i live in new york <laughs> yeah. and, and there are like you know there are norms against talking to strangers in new york because it's so crowded generally yeah. it's so busy um, but I realized that I, I was starting to use like the, like the self checkout lane at the CVS mm. and I was starting to do everything with my phone. And, uh, I don't remember what triggered it exactly, but I realized that, that I just wasn't doing it anymore. And that I would go to a bar and I would be staring at my phone like a dope when there were plenty of people around me that I could have been talking to. Yeah. Um, and one day I was, uh, I was traveling and I had an incredible late night conversation with a cab driver, mm. uh, which was just, it was just a mind blowingly good conversation, completely yeah. random, you know, one of those. Uh, late at night. And, uh, and it reminded me that, you know, I used to talk to strangers more than I do now. Uh, and it reminded me how, how, how edifying it could be and how satisfying it could be and, and funny and poignant, you know, these, these could be really rich encounters with just totally random people. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was kind of the start of it. Um, realizing that I had stopped and then kind of asking bigger questions about why other people don't talk to strangers and what happens when we do talk to strangers. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that that sent me down about 30 different rabbit holes yeah. uh, and consumed my life for a couple of years. But yeah, but that's the backstory. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like your book's broken up to into all these sections and you, and you, you know, talk to so many different people and all that. And, and, you know, so here, here's what I'm curious about, like through, through this process, like, and you kind of recognizing it in yourself. Uh, Cause I do want to dive into some of like what the research says about, you know, some things going on, why we don't talk to strangers, but did you find anything like, personally that led you or was it like kind of like you know the slowly like the temperature turning up where you just gradually stopped doing it, or was it anything in particular do you think that made you kind of stop talking to strangers yeah there wasn't like a moment where it went bad and i stopped yeah. doing it it was definitely <laughs> like the frog boiling in the pot um you know i as far as i could tell in in my own situation it was two things that happened uh one was i had a young child she would have been mm. about two at this point um, maybe a little less than that. And that's all consuming. And I had a demanding and stressful job. So, so juggling a, a tough job and a young kid, um, just sucks the, sucks all the energy out of you. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, limits your ability to move. So I wasn't hanging out in public places like I used to, mm -hmm. you know, as far as I wasn't hanging out in coffee shops, I was stretched very thin. And I was very tired. And, um, and so I think the prospect of talking to people, of of like exerting that much cognitive effort to talk to other people which yeah. can be you know it can be cognitively demanding we can talk about that research a little bit yeah uh, it was just daunting to me just feeling like i don't have any gas in the tank like i don't have enough juice mm. 
chat up the, the lady working at CVS or something like that, you know, which is something that I, I used to do with some regularity. So that was a big part, just being tired and being stretched too thin and, and not living that public life. Uh, but the other big thing was just the phone, you know, uh, for a certain mm. category of people, if you have a smartphone, you literally never have to talk to strangers again, right? You don't have to ask for directions. You don't mm -hmm. have to call the pizza guy. You can do everything. If you're going to get your coffee at Starbucks, you can order in advance. Oh, like yeah. You can eliminate all interactions with strangers. And yes, that's efficient, right? Like it's pretty frictionless, but it turns out that friction is actually good for us. Like that sort of social friction is good. Those interactions are really good for us. Mm -hmm. um, but that was, that was kind of it. And then at a certain point, it's just, you know, you start to feel out of shape socially. You start to feel like maybe you're feeling a little slow witted. That was certainly the case yeah. with me. Um, you're not as good as like the improvisational nature of just talking to someone new. Mm -hmm. um, and you just stop doing it. And then, you know, you feel maybe more, you know, uh, incompetent and the more incompetent you feel, the less likely you are to do it. It just goes into the spiral where like me, all of a sudden you're sitting in a bar, like staring at Twitter and, uh, yeah. and it doesn't feel good. And you're not really learning anything and you're not, you're not socializing and, and socializing is really important for the mental health of humans. Right. We're, yeah. we're super. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, like it's, that's kind of what led me to start socializing more it's just the mental health aspect but uh it's it's funny because i have an upcoming episode the other day i talked with author uh julie vick she has a uh she came out with a parenting book about like being an introverted parent so like when you're talking about having your kid like when i had my son right all i could think about was like oh crap this is gonna shove me into social situations like play dates or taking him to the park and i don't want to talk to anybody but you know it was a combination of like introversion and social anxiety, but also, also for me personally, like back in the day, I used to have a lot of anger issues in my, in my addiction days, Joe. And I thought everybody was an idiot. So I was like, this is like talking about like, you know, cognitively demanding. I was like, no, everybody's dumb, you know? And that was a lot of just me being messed up. And since then I've, I've grown and, you know, learned the importance of talking with people, right. And having like, you know, uh, support systems and, and all that and sharing experiences, with you know other people and all that um but but yeah i do i do want to kind of talk about you know the the research and you know you mentioned like you know just uh like our, our brains are flooded on a daily basis with like news information you mentioned like twitter that's constantly refreshing and all that but you know like with that like if you could explain that a little bit what the research says about that or any other of like the main reasons that you think that we're, we've kind of dialed back on our talking with strangers. Yeah. Yeah. It's really complicated. It's a, it's a pretty insidious cocktail of stuff that's, yeah. that's, that's causing us to withdraw from one another in a way that I don't think was the case for previous generations, at least mm. in like recent history. Um, okay. Let's, let's stick down the list. So number one, uh, there's stranger danger propaganda. Um, yeah. I think you and I are probably, we, we seem to be about the same age. I'm 36. Okay. So I'm a little older than you. I'm, I'm 44. Um, but, um, but when I was a kid in school, like it was just an endless parade of cops coming into your class and telling you that everyone you don't know in the world poses a mortal threat to you, yeah. right? Like everybody. And it's like, you know, it, it, it turns out the research is starting to bear this out that uh, that's not a great thing to tell kids that everyone you've never met is trying to abduct and murder you. So yeah. th there is a little bit of preliminary research now that shows that that might have actually um, hurt an entire generation's ability to trust other people. And trust is really important for society. Yeah. So there's yeah. that we were we were poisoned against strangers uh, from a very early age, and so that's you know the, I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off, but that's no, definitely no, no. I was just thinking. Um, I'm I'm curious 
because I, I know you mentioned that in the book and I, I think about that. And now that I know that you, you know, we're, we're divided about by eight years, I'm curious if, if you've come across any research, like, like for me, for example, and it might just be because, you know, uh, we all had different parents, but I remember like, I had a lot of freedom, right? Like I heard about it. Like I remember hearing like, you know, like, oh, trick or treating, they're going to put razor blades. And there were so many like these like one-offs that turned into these huge things. Like you talk about the story of, uh, um, jo- uh, what's his name? John Walsh and uh, him losing his son and everything. So, right, so yeah. I'm like, I'm like curious if it was maybe like more prevalent, like for you guys, like growing up in the eighties, like I grew up a little bit more in the nineties, but I've also noticed that me now as a parent, I have that idea, even though we're objectively safer, my son's 12 and he has a freaking cell phone. You know what I mean? So like, have you seen it like kind of like go up and down at all? I'm not sure. It's a hard thing to put numbers to. Um, It was definitely intense when I was a kid. I mean, it was everywhere. It was on like, it was on cereal boxes. It was in like, you'd watch children's TV and there would be like PSAs warning you about strangers. Right. And meanwhile, what we know is that um, the vast, vast, vast majority of major crimes are committed by people known to the victim, mm. right? Strangers actually commit like a relatively small percentage of crimes. Acquaintances can, you know, commit a lot of crimes. Former lovers commit a lot of crimes. Mm. Family members commit a lot of crimes. So the serious stuff for serious assault, sexual assault, murder, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to say if, 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 the, if, the, if the concern has gone up and down. There's some research in this that shows that like my generation, you know, if maybe your generation too, inherited a lot of that without you know, they're kind of ambivalent about it where they, they know that it's not necessarily statistically based, right? They know yeah. that it's an overreaction, but they're still doing it because a, a sort of culture has formed around it. Mm. Um, it's just been the way, the way that people act, um, the way that people consider, you know, the, the way they think about the way people think about how children interface with the world and how they yeah. interface children interfacing with the world. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely, there, there are very strong traces of it left. You know, interestingly, the center for missing and exploited children, which is John Walsh's organization, which mm-hmm. was like one of the leading peddlers of stranger danger propaganda in the eighties, um, banned use of the phrase. They stopped using the phrase because they realized that it was doing a lot of damage because yeah. if a kid's lost, a kid's going to have to turn to a stranger, right? That's yeah. how it's going to work. It's they're going to go to maybe a, a, they see a mother, they see a cop, whatever. Um, the stranger is going to be the person who helps. So they're basically teaching kids to be a little more savvy instead of just like blurting out mm-hmm. or blotting out an entire category of human beings when it comes to like times of crisis. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So anyways, it's a long way of saying, but that, but that's definitely part of it. Yeah. You no, know, I get a lot of like weird emails from people telling me that I'm like helping sex offenders and stuff by writing this book, but I, I'll send them the data being like, I didn't look, even the, think the, about you know, that. That's insane. Yeah, a lot, a lot. I get a lot of that stuff, but you yeah. just, you look at the crime data and it's just, it's, it's not statistically based, right? The yeah. people we know are the bigger problem. Um, yeah. you know, interestingly, I talked to an anthropologist who was telling me, um, and this is kind of the flip side of it, but, um, she was telling the people in the, the San people in, in the Kalahari desert, um, mm-hmm. which are kind of the oldest continuous kind of hunter gatherer society that we know of. And, um, and she was saying sometimes in America, people kill strangers and they thought it was hilarious. They were like, why would you kill a stranger? It doesn't make any sense. Like I would kill my brother if he like took my <laughs> wife or had something I wanted, but yeah. like, it doesn't make any sense to kill a stranger. Yeah, yeah. You know? uh, and I like that idea, but, um, yeah. but so other, some other things that do it, you know, if you live in a city, cities are really, um, they're very crowded. They're very fast. That creates social norms against talking to strangers just because it's sort of hard to, you can't, you know, you're not making eye contact with people walking down fifth Avenue in New York at rush hour. It's just overwhelming, right? There's a, a mm-hmm. term overload for what happens, which is you're so bombarded with, with stimulus or stimuli that, um, that you kind of shut down, right? You kind of like, you just 
kind of, you know, eyes on the horizon and just walk straight and don't acknowledge anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, that definitely, that definitely drives it. Um, technology certainly drives it. You know, what I said about the smartphone is pretty universal at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing the generations who are raised on the smartphone are actually much more socially anxious than people who weren't yeah. uh, because they're out of practice because they do most of their communication digitally. And when you put them in the company of someone else, they struggle. Um, mm-hmm. There's definitely some of that stuff. You know, there can be bigger social and cultural factors. Race can factor into it. Gender can factor into it. Certainly, if there are cases of prejudice mm-hmm. in a culture, um, that can do it. Um, but yeah, there, there are just so many things that conspire against it. You know, but, what, but one really interesting thing that a psychologist, you know, the leading psychologist on this is a woman named Gillian Sands from in England. Mm-hmm. And she was saying that, you know, she, she created an inventory of fear. So she wanted to create like a database of the things that keep people from talking to strangers. And the biggest thing, across ages, across genders, was uh, a fear that they didn't know how to do it. That's, mm. you know, that was at the core of all this stuff is this, this kind of insecurity, this, this concern that if, even if we did want to do it, we would end up blurting something weird out. We would be awkward. They would reject us. They wouldn't like us. We wouldn't know mm. what to talk about. Um, that's the big one. That's the big hop to get over that and kind of social norms against talking to strangers. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. Later, I want to make sure we talk about your section on small talk because that was one of my biggest struggles, and and your section on that is amazing, and and yeah, because I I can I can see that right, and like uh you know like oh what am I going to talk about? What are we going to what are they going to think about me? Like we're so like just like self conscious. That's like part of it, and then you know there's all the other social things like we live in like Instagram world where everybody's perfect and showing off their best life and everything. So am I going to say something dumb? Are they going to judge me and all that? But one of the things that you talked about too, and if you can kind of break it down a little bit, was uh that uh, speaking of fears was immigration fears. Like there was some interesting stuff you you found around that and it seemed to kind of make sense. Like why we're afraid of others. And, you know, uh, uh, I've been talking with different like uh, social psychologists about the in-group versus out-group type things. And I kind of see, I'm like, ah, you know, seeing how it kind of crosses over. So, you know, especially with what's going on in Afghanistan, and there's so many debates around like, do we let in refugees and all that? Can you talk a little bit about how like, you know, immigration fears play into the, the idea of strangers and danger and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, there's definitely, there's something called intergroup anxiety, which is the anxiety people feel about communicating with someone of a different group. And that group can be anybody. It can be racial, it can be gender, it can be nationality, it can be ideological, um, but it's pretty universal. It, it applies to everybody. Everybody feels a little, um, apprehensive about talking to people from different groups, right? So this is sort of the baseline, right? This mm-hmm. is this is always there. This isn't this doesn't result in um cruelty or violence or anything like that. It's just kind of a baseline anxiety. Um when that anxiety is provoked by leaders, then it can turn into something much nastier. It can turn mm-hmm. into dehumanization. It can be it can turn into fear that these people are a threat to us. It can turn into symbolic fears like they're a threat to our way of life. And we hear this stuff all the time, right? Interestingly, there's a, there's a lot of research on what immigration was like in America um, in the the early years of the 20th century. And America used to pride itself, and this wasn't just like liberals, this is everybody. They really liked the fact that people really wanted to come to America. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was was like a sign of prestige being like, these people are coming from all these places and they're all coming here because what we have is great. Yeah. Um, And it's tied to optimism, basically. So when people feel optimistic, they're much more accepting of refugees when they feel pessimistic, when they feel the world is maybe Mm. unfair or imbalanced or precarious. That's when the switch can be thrown Mm. and they can be really um, they can be very wary of foreigners and they can end up being, you know, very hostile to people from other places. Um, You know, the cool thing is that as long as the people speak the same language, which is obviously hurdle to clear, um, 
people's pessimism about interacting with with individuals from other groups is is often um, baseless or not baseless, yeah. but not not necessarily grounded. The research shows that when people do have um, conversations across these boundaries, uh, it tends to go better better than they expected, and tends to be easier than they expected it to be. Um, yeah. But in a time like this, yeah, I mean, it, you know, when you're when everybody's feeling insecure about this at this moment, and all of a sudden you have the prospect of refugees coming to the U.S., um, I can see that that would be um, anxiety producing for people, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting to like uh, one of the reasons I love your book and I, I hope it's, you know, even though it's, it's newer, I hope it's getting the recognition it needs because learning how to talk with people, it, it's changed my life for the better. Like I'm still rather introverted. Like I can't, like I get drained if I'm in a large group, but, but introverts like myself, we do well with one-on-one -on -one conversations. That's why like I could sit here. We just met five minutes ago after talking through email and, and we could chat, but uh, yeah, it's really, you know, when I was working at a drug and alcohol rehab center, I think that's when it really clicked for me. Like it, it helps me understand another person's perspective. It helps me understand what they've been through because, you know, we, you know, going back to uh, just, uh, you know, the we have a limited amount of cognitive space. We make these quick judgments of people. We see somebody and we stereotype them and all these other things, even though we hate to admit it, our brain is doing it because we're just flooded and we have all these other things to do. So when we can set down the time and talk with people from other countries, other backgrounds, other things like that, I'm like, oh, you're you're just like me or oh you've been through this and and we start to find ways that we can relate but but yeah i think that's a perfect se segue i want to i want to switch gears because something you talk about quite a bit in the book to get this thing rolling is the benefits the benefits of talking to strangers so so people listening right now that's like joe's insane i don't want to talk to strangers sell them on it joe what what does the science say around us talking to strangers yeah, I mean, for starters, you know, it's it's only been the, over the last fifteen years or so that psychologists have started to study this, but they're finding that you know even passing interactions with strangers, so like a little chat with the barista at your coffee shop or something, um, leaves people feeling happier, more connected to where they live, um, more optimistic, perhaps more trusting, um, less lonely. So a lot of these things are kind of the bugbears of the age, right? We're living through a time of intense loneliness. That's a loneliness epidemic um, throughout the yeah. West. Um, and it's it's catastrophic. It's bad for people's individual health. It's bad for the health of societies. But just talking to people, talking to the guy at the fruit stand, talking to the lady at the Starbucks, those sorts of things, those, those little interactions can actually bind us to the places where we live. It can make the world seem less chaotic. It can make people seem better um, because you're, you know, you're having positive interactions with people. Mm -hmm. um, it really does have a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of benefits. And, and we're seeing this in studies involving a lot of different people in a lot of different countries. You know, it seems to be um, a pretty universal thing. Um, now there are going to be exceptions, of course, but by and large, according to the research that's been done, we've seen this from Turkey to, to Toronto, mm -hmm. the U S England, Canada, um, we're seeing it a lot in, in these, these results are being replicated by different researchers on a regular basis. So that's really cool. You know, to your point about stereotypes, um, this is really interesting too, because I, I think about this a lot. I think about the political, um, mm -hmm. the kind of political and social implications of talking to strangers. And there's, there's a decent amount of research on this now, too, on how meaningful contact with people from other groups can alleviate prejudice. It can alleviate prejudice against, you know, people who are different from us politically, racially, mm -hmm. you know, um, people who are different genders, people who come from different places. Having meaningful contact with those people um, 
can reduce prejudice, right? And prejudice is a very, a very serious problem in America right now. In a lot of places, that's, that's literally tearing the country apart. Yeah. And the reason why it works against prejudice is because what is prejudice? Prejudice is a, a hyper-simplified perception of what a person is based on their group, right? So you see someone and you say, oh, you're from here? I know what you're about. And then I dismiss you. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's seldom good. It's seldom we have like a really great stereotype about people. Um, it's usually bad. So what happens when you talk to somebody from one of those groups? You will find almost every single time that they defy the stereotype, that they're not simple, right? Their yeah. motivations are complex. Their inner lives are as vibrant as our inner lives are. That like dehumanization that goes with stereotyping and goes with prejudice is, it doesn't last long in the face of contact, in the face of a good conversation with someone. And in my personal experience, and I've lived, I've lived in the Northeast for most of my life, you know, I'm like a kind of moderate liberal Northeasterner. Yeah. Um, you know, my biggest prejudice in America should be against like rural Southerners, right? Because those yeah. are the people who culturally are going to be the most different from me. I, I have an easier time dealing with like a refugee from Afghanistan than I probably would from a guy from Alabama who lived in rural Alabama because I just mm -hmm. don't have a lot of contact with those people. Um, but I have had contact with those people and I have traveled pretty extensively in the South and it makes it really difficult for me to do what a lot of Northeasterners do or a lot of blue state people do, which is dismiss the red states. You know what I mean? Because I would just, you know, when you dismiss an entire region, you're doing it on the basis of stereotypes. You're doing it on a basis of a very simplified perception of what these people are like and what motivates them. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll be like, well, our side is really special. We're smart. We're like, we have yeah. free will, you know, we're so, we're so savvy. And these other people are just cogs in a machine and they think the same thing about us. You know, yeah. we don't give each other credit for agency and intelligence. Um, and when you talk, when you have conversations with people from other groups, it's unavoidable. Their, their com complexity is unavoidable. Their humanity is unavoidable. It's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just, you know, becomes difficult if you're not together, if you're not in the same physical space, it, it becomes really difficult to gain the benefits of those sorts of interactions. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting as, as we were talking about, you know, kind of like the political divides, because, you know, I'm, I'm pretty left-leaning myself. And a few weeks ago, I had the uh, professor uh, and author Jonathan Marks on here, and he's, he's conservative. And I read his book. And one of the reasons I wanted to have him on, I read his book. I'm like, wait a second, you're conservative. And it sounds like we're on the same page about, I don't know, like 90% of things, you know what I mean? And we, we talked and, and through that conversation, just talking with him and I knew he was like, cool. I'm like, I, I could have that conversation, but I was like, when I think of these things, I, I immediately get somebody in my, in my mind, right? Like when we talk about Southern, like I think of like a Southern hardworking farmer who goes to church all the time, doesn't believe in science. You know what I mean? Like I start categorizing and that's, mm -hmm. that's what our brains do. And yeah. something that I'm, I'm really hoping to help people with is just, you know, not saying you're a bad person, but we're kind of designed to do that to, you know, because we need to, we need to save space. We need to say, okay, good. This is good. This is bad. This is good. This is bad. Right. And, and, you know, we just need to start acknowledging it so we can get past it but like you said like there's there's something weird and i don't think it's a bad thing like i forgot it was uh, it was like a book like moral tribes or something where liberals kind of have like this broader view where conservatives are a little bit more like tight-knit so they're more like america and we're more like hey let's help everybody you know what i mean but there's something kind of off when we're showing more empathy and understanding to people from other countries like i'm not saying it's a bad thing but it is something to think about it seems like when we're showing more empathy and understanding to somebody across the sea than somebody who's just a few states away you know you know what i mean and and i guess this is you know there's a good way to talk about this but you talk a lot about the braver angels project and that's been coming up more and more and more and uh yeah so if you could can you explain a little bit about what braver angels does for those who do not 
know about them? Yeah. So Braver Angels is an organization that was founded by uh, three political operatives uh, or two, two political operatives and then some other people, but a Republican and a Democrat. Yeah. And after 2016, they wanted to see if it would be possible, possible to get a room full of Hillary supporters and Trump supporters to talk. Right. Which is like, it's inconceivable. Right. Yeah. There, there's I hear no that. I'm like, there's, that's insane. <laughs> yeah. There's no dialogue. Um, yeah. It's, it's the monkey cage, you know? So um, with all due respect to monkeys, um, <laughs> They're better at governing than we are at the moment. Yeah. Um, so Braver Angels, you know, they they had this, they, they um, I believe it was in Ohio, they did the first gathering and they brought on a guy who's like a renowned family therapist who deals with conflict and deals with like this sort of conflict that tears groups apart, tears family apart, families apart. And he wanted to see if he could create a structure that would allow Democrats and Republicans to feel comfortable talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And he did it and it worked really well. Um, and a lot of it was pushing back on stereotypes controlling your impulse to jump all over someone, controlling the impulse to be contemptuous and dismissive and trying to foster connection as a human before you start connecting as, you know, political partisans. So mm-hmm. it's, it's basically the, 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 the system and this thing has now gone, it's, it's pretty big, but yeah. Brave Angels is a pretty big organization and they're, they're doing really good work. I spent a lot of time with them. Um, they basically inverted the way we have political discussions in America. So how do we have political discussions? Generally, we do it online, which is not great for political discussions. Yeah. You go on Twitter, someone voices an opinion that's different from yours, and then you trash them. And that's like, that's the state of the discourse, right? Yeah. Um, because online and at times of hyperpolarization, people are their views, right? So if someone is mm-hmm. like pro-life, a liberal would just be like, you hate women. Everything about you is you hating women. This is like, I'm going to, I'm going to take this view and I'm going to create an entire person, um, around this. And then I'm going to get really mad at the person, right? So you don't get complexity and we may, you know, really vehemently disagree, but we don't see the whole person. We just see the view. Yeah. So what Brave Brave Angels does, it puts people together and it doesn't, it tells them not to talk about politics until they've talked as people, right? So they sit together and they talk about why they came to this gathering and where they're from. And, you know, just, this is human psychology. They chat a little bit. They, they're a little curious about each other. Do you have kids? Do I have kids? Do we have dogs? Where do you live? Oh, I've been there before. All these little small talk things um, that put each other at ease, right? Because the perception that we have of each other at a time of like severe and, and political kind of, It kind of humanizes the other person before talking about yeah. these kind of like difficult issues. Right. You're like, this lady has a dog. How bad she could be? How bad <laughs> yeah, could she yeah. be? It's, it's almost like laughable how little it takes to get people yeah. to connect like a dog, like Hitler had a dog. He was seemed to be an exemplary dog owner. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but anyways, so they, but they do that first. So it's just people sitting and chatting. They're making small talk. And, you know, we can talk more about small talk, but what small talk does is show that the person's not a threat, shows that, you know, you can feel reasonably safe in their company. Um, and it finds something that you can talk about. It finds something that you have in common. Maybe you're football fans, whatever it is. And so once that bond is secure, then Brave Angels moves on to bigger stuff, right? So it's like, oh, I like, I like this person. I can talk to this person. This person's like a, a good person. It's not what I had in my mind when I thought about a member of this party. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can, then they have them, instead of just being like, okay, you've talked about dogs. You seem to like each other. Okay, let's resolve abortion. They go gradual, right? So yeah. then they're like, so, you know, you can bring up an issue, but you have to talk about it in terms of um, what got you to your belief. So how did you come mm. to believe this? How did you come to believe to hold these views on gun control, to hold these views on abortion. And again, that, that shows complexity and it shows agency and it shows thought because when, when people are really polarized, they don't give anyone credit for their beliefs on the other side. It's just like you inherited this. You're just being a good soldier. You haven't thought this through. Yeah. And so then they see the process. They get to see a piece of the person's life because our political views are so entwined with 
our upbringing and things like that. Mm-hmm. And they get to see that there's some reasoning there, right? And they may learn something. They may learn a, a nuance to this issue that they didn't they didn't know because they hadn't engaged with it beyond the kind of normal, you know, yeah. you know, like a hard smash smash mouth politics. And then they can get there, right? But that's the thing. You have to make the connection first before they start talking about politics. And I spent mm-hmm. five days with them in uh, in St. Louis at their convention. And at first, people were really wary and their expectations were not high. I mean, it says something that they were willing to come to this. So they weren't yeah. the most hardened partisans, but they definitely weren't moderates necessarily. Um, but they were moderate almost socially, right? Like they would be, they were willing to try it. And that, yeah. you know, I know that's a self-selecting group. But they were wary at first, they were suspicious at first. And then by the end of it, it was like summer camp where we'd be in the cafeteria and people would literally be seeking out members of the other party to talk to. Yeah. Um, and it was so exuberant and it was so hopeful. Um, and the conversations were great. There were much better political conversations because they weren't just like, you're this, you're that, you're this, you're that. They were actual engaging conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and people felt tremendously reassured that it was possible to have a conversation across these boundaries. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't instantly fix everything. There, there was some like kind of dumb New York times column a while back where a guy was saying really? that you know, people always say we need to learn to talk to each other, but I talked to like two people and it didn't change their mind. So that's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, buddy, it doesn't work like that. You know, it's, yeah. it's going to take 20 years to fix this damage, but yeah. it can't happen without this, without this step, you can't fix the damage. Um, the political damage in this country. You have to learn to recognize the other person as an individual and you have to learn the, the social skills to talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that's crazy. That New York times, like, I think, uh, I think a lot of our expectations are, are just, just silly. Right. Like I, uh, I've had a lot of, you know, scientists and, you know, philosophers on here and, you know, a big thing right now is like science denial and just debates around, you know, like, you know, it almost seems like it was easier when we were just debating about global warming, but now we have a pandemic and everything. But anyways, like, like this idea that you're just going to like tell someone like, Hey, you're dumb. Go look at the science and get vaccinated. Like that's going to work. <laughs> no, it's it's not. And it sucks that we're in a pandemic, but it takes time. It takes conversations. It takes getting people's wheels turning. And, and some people are just, you know, farther along in their beliefs and, and holding on to it, you know, so tight. But, but one of the things that, you know, you, you touch on is like, uh, the internet is not a place to do this. And so I've been, I, I, maybe it's because I enjoy, uh, you know, science and experiments, but I I've been trying it. I've been trying it out online. Right. And here's, what's crazy, Joe, let me tell you what's crazy. When, when you're not for lack of better words, a dick, it's surprising how well I, in the last week or so, I have had multiple, multiple conversations where the other person said, Hey, thanks for having a conversation about this, right? And we've exchanged articles to kind of see where each other are coming from. And so so that that has me sitting back. I'm like, okay, well, you know, because I, I think the reason why I, I keep trying it is because I'm like, well, the internet isn't going away, right? So, <laughs> so you know, I, I keep hearing like, don't do it online. Well, I'm like, but if we could figure out how to do it online, that'd be kind of cool, right? Yeah. But when I'm, you know, when I'm not participating and I'm just watching, kind of like what you mentioned, it's it's attacking and something i've been really interested in is kind of like status intergroup status and everything it's difficult it feels like it's difficult to have those conversations publicly because people are signaling to their tribe like look how i burned this lib look how right. i burned this conservative and i think that's what makes it difficult but when i 
here's just some of my personal strategies. If I, if I see the person is willing to have a good faith conversation, I'll keep it going. But if it seems like they're just trying to prove their status within their group, I give them my email address because I'm like, okay, I don't know if you're just trying to show off in front of your group. So let's bring it private. We'll have a conversation and stuff like that because I, I, you know, especially in, in COVID. And I think, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about that. Right now, you know, with the Delta spiking up again, we had like five days of thinking that things are going to reopen, but now we're locked down again. So, you know, uh, and you started this book before the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like we, we have to get used to it. As God forbid, another pandemic happens, but we have to be able to have these conversations online. So, so I guess, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and by the way, before we move on from Better Angels, everybody needs to read the book because I was... I, my favorite part about that was all the things they tried that didn't work like that. I, I love, I love learning about that, but, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. but, but yeah, in, in regards to COVID, like how, how has that changed? Because you started on this project, like when you could run around New York freely, talk with strangers, do, do all these little, like you met with a lot of really interesting people who try this stuff, but like, how has this changed with COVID and like, have you, have you changed up your strategies for talking with strangers in this pandemic over the last year and a half or whatever it's been. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I started it. I started this project late 2018. I finished the first draft of the book in late 2019. Mm. Um, so I revised it a little bit for COVID like during edits, Yeah. but yeah, I didn't, didn't see this coming, which is, it, it's interesting too, because, you know, I get into a whole field of, of, uh, of research called pathogen threat that shows how rates of infectious disease can drive xenophobia. Um, mm -hmm. And this is over the long term, right? So this is over hundreds of years. Cultures will form that'll be more wary of strangers in places that have higher rates of infectious disease, which makes a lot of sense because the strangers might be carrying disease. And that became part of like our behavioral immune system. And all mm. that, that can drive that can drive wariness of strangers, fear of strangers. It's very easy to trigger people into, th into seeing strangers, especially if they look different than us, as disease carriers. You you hear it all the time with yeah. immigrants. You hear it with Black Americans, like Drew. You know the history of america with black with regards to black americans is always talked that they're somehow diseased or they have germs you know mm -hmm. that sort of thing you know, it's, it's easy to trigger because it's there it's part of our part of our wiring um unfortunately and fortunately if you live in a place with a lot of disease maybe it's good you know it keeps you safe it's there for yeah. a reason but with covid um it makes it a lot more complicated because you just can't mingle like you used to and because there is wariness there there's an additional layer of wariness there's an additional mm -hmm. layer, layer of, of anxiety you know, the data shows that we're much more likely to get COVID from people we know than from strangers, but because we're wired to link strangers with infectious disease, it makes it, it gives us a tendency to just, you know, make that, make that connection to equate strangers with, with the spread of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's definitely hard. It's hard when you can't go to a bar, really. It's hard when you can't hang out in a coffee shop, you, you know, your chances of talking to strangers becomes much, much lower. Um, especially if you don't live in a city, I can go into the park. Like there will be people in the park. It's possible to have a conversation from six feet away. If you live in the suburbs, it might be much more difficult because you don't have like public spaces like that necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, that, that is, they're not as readily accessible. Um, but the really interesting thing about going through this in New York was that you saw the flip side of it. So yes, we were very wary of each other. Yes, we were, we were very cautious. You, you know, in the early weeks of the pandemic in New York, you know, and I stayed the whole time through this. Mm. Um, it was terrifying and people were crossing the street to avoid each other. Right. Like it was, it was instead fearless. of like the crowded sidewalks, like, yeah, like yeah, I didn't people even see like, like video. yeah, well, no, no. Was, the, the city was empty. A lot of people left for sure, but the people who were, who remained were definitely avoiding each other. But then it became clear at a certain point that this was 
a thing that the community had to deal with as a community, mm. right? So as much as like it was up to us as individuals to kind of stay out of circulation, um, the community needed to pull together. And you saw this really fascinating thing in New York, which was people became friendlier, mm -hmm. um, much more so. And I, th I think New York's actually a pretty friendly town. I grew up in Boston. Boston is, uh, is an un unfriendly town. A little bit different. <laughs> right. Um, and I, you know, I love Bostonians, but they're, they could be pricks. Um, yeah. But when you're walking around the neighborhood, I'm walking around my neighborhood in New York, and people would actually like acknowledge you and say mm -hmm. hi and ask how you were doing, which was really amazing. Like there was those questions were sincere and they were being offered, you know, like randomly out of the street. Um, and people had their masks on and they were respecting social distancing regulations and stuff like that. But they really did make an attempt to check in with each other um, and connect with each other. And I think partly because everyone was so starved for social contact that it became really stressful and difficult, isolating and lonely, uh, yeah. um, you know, um, they just needed their fix, you know? Um, but also because we're, we're a community, like we're a city, you know, I think New York is, is very good at dealing with crisis in a way. Um, but just being like, we're in it together. You know, we, we have to find a way to signal to one another that we're not terrified of each other, you know, that I'm staying away from you because I want to protect you from me as much as the opposite is true. Yeah. Oh, and, and, you know, there's some fantastic conversations I had with people, particularly older people who had a really hard time, obviously people who live mm -hmm. alone in the city. Um, they were really proactive and they would just start conversations all the time. And, and you, you talk to them because you miss talking to people, but also as a kindness to someone who's probably struggling and probably lonely. So yeah, it just, it, 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 it made us worry, you know, wary of strangers, but it also kind of reinforced the value of talking to strangers, yeah. um, you know, as a, as a, an element of our like mental health diet in a way. Mm -hmm. um, it was just great. I, I kind of know the, the family that owns the grocery store in our neighborhood. And um, I always chat with one of the, one of the nephews and I went in there at the worst of COVID and he was wearing like a, I was just in the meat aisle and uh, all of a sudden I feel this, this presence next to me. And I turn, I turn to my right and I see him and he's wearing like a hazmat suit. <laughs> and he, just, he just looks at me and he goes, so what's new with you? <laughs> like, yeah, this is normal. That. <laughs> like a full hazmat suit. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but yeah, but the, the, but the city became much more social and much friendlier. And I, I think it, 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 it still feels that way. It still feels like tighter knit than it was before, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I, as you were talking about that, like, uh, right before we, we hopped on, I was thinking about, you know, like I, I go on like morning walks around my neighborhood, a couple, a couple miles and, and there's like, uh, you know, there's certain people I always see on my walk and it's interesting especially since uh school started so i'm seeing like you know uh you know teenagers and then parents with kids and stuff and just seeing like so so i've kind of noticed like there's there's like older people like i don't know 60s 70s maybe on their walk we always greet each other like hey how's it going good morning and then we cross again we're like hey have a good day right and then i notice people more around my age there's it, it's kind of like that like avert the you know don't look at them and everything and you, it's funny too because you talk about that in the book when you're doing some homework which i want to talk about in a second like when to make eye contact and not be creepy and stuff mm -hmm. like that but uh it's funny because uh i'm an audiobook listener so i'm listening to your book as i'm going on my walks and like trying to you know implement some of these things i think i've gotten a lot better over the years like i've been you know i've worked on my social anxiety i've worked on you know uh, uh i'm still not like running out to parties even though i live here in vegas right like i'm still kind of introverted but i do these things and one of the ways i you know quote unquote trick myself is i remind myself that it's good for me right like hey it's good for you to talk to other people so so like yeah um before I, I ask you about some of these like, you know, little hacks for like icebreakers and small talk and stuff like that. Um, going back to the parenting thing, right? Because you're, you're a dad, I'm a dad. 
And I don't, I don't know what it is, but I get really worried. So my son, just a real quick, my son, he is 12 years old, 12 and a half. Right. And he's almost taller than me now. And that's, and I'm like five, 10 ish. Right. So he's a big kid. Like he, if, if somebody tried to abduct him, it would be the really dumb, right. He's a nice, sweet boy, but they don't know that he's big. But anyways, anyways, I still get worried. So I'm curious, you know, your thoughts around this, like, you know, as, as parents, what, what should we as parents do? Because, you know, if, with you getting emails that you're like trying to help pedophiles and, you know, and all this stuff, where, where's that balance of talking with strangers while also being careful with strangers? Like, have you planned this out or, you know, I, I'm not sure how old, you know, your, your kid is, but like, what, what are you going to do? How do, what, what's this solution? Yeah, no, I, I push my kid to talk to everybody. So she's five years old. Okay. Um, she's growing up in New York, so she's going to have to be street smart. She's going to have yeah. to be a little scrappy for sure. And she is, and that's good. Um, yeah, you know, she's usually with us. So there's, you know, there are going to be very few instances when she's on her own. And that, that's not going to happen for several years. We talk to her about this a lot. Um, you know, our technique is, is pretty much what's recommended by the Centers for Missing and Exploited Children, which is... Um, if, it, if, a, if you're alone and an adult comes up to you and your kid and asks you for help, that's mm -hmm. a red flag, right? Because there's no reason for an adult to be asking yeah. your kid for help. Yeah, what adult would do you that? You know, yeah. be like, can you help me with my dog? Like, that's a serious red flag. Someone saying good morning is not a serious red flag. That might mm. just be someone being friendly. So, you know, that's the thing that we would really push. Um, and we're not, you know, we're not Pollyannas about this. You know, we're, I, I've been a journalist for 20 years. I was raised by funeral directors. I've seen a lot of bad things for sure. So I'm, I'm aware of what the world is. Um, but I do think that you got to go by the data, which is, you know, the real threat is coming from family. It's coming from acquaintances when it comes to kids. Like that's a, that was a real blind spot that people had for a long time that mm -hmm. ended up being kind of catastrophic because they were so concerned with strangers that they weren't keeping an eye on like the uncle or the cousin or the neighbor, you know, yeah. and that's, that's where the threat comes from. Um, so, you know, bearing in mind the data, but I also want her to be able to navigate the world. <clears throat> I want her to be comfortable navigating the world. And that involves cultivating social skills. And I want her to get the benefits that you get from talking to people. We live in New York. You know, there's huge benefits just from talking to people who are different than you are. People whose experiences are different. Their perspectives are different. Their backgrounds are different. Mm. Like that's the path to wisdom right there. Um, to have real in-person interactions with people. And you can certainly do this online. Like to your earlier point, you can be disciplined and focused in the way you interact with people online and it can be really fruitful. It can be great. You know, I've mm -hmm. done, I had a guy threaten to kill me one time and I made him my friend after about six emails. A guy, a guy <laughs> in Texas he invited me down to have a beer with him after we, we had a nice. good chat. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so yeah, just trying to be realistic about it, but, but really being, being very aware of the forces that keep us apart and trying to compensate for those. Mm -hmm. Um, and trying to demonstrate just through my interactions with people, like the joy of living like this, this is why you live in a city. So you can talk to people. You don't live in a city so you can keep your eyes down all the time and never talk to anyone. Like there's an yeah. enormous, you have an enormous opportunity being surrounded by so many different people. Um, you just have to like develop the skills and the confidence to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually been, uh, surprised because my son's the, the opposite of me. I was very, a very shy kid. Didn't like talking with people and he'll you know he'll like if someone's wearing like a marvel shirt or something be like hey nice shirt you know and he's, and he's friendly and stuff like that but i think you know uh and you mentioned this a little bit earlier like if my son like got lost like if you know the the, the country reopens and we we feel safe going to like an amusement park if he gets lost i don't want him to be deathly afraid of asking 
someone for help, you know, and these, those are, you know, the drawbacks of teaching your kids to fear strangers. But like you said, like there's, there's red flags. So sometimes, you know, my, my son's old enough where, uh, you know, uh, he'll be like, Oh, can I wait in the car? Like if I run into the store and I'm like, okay, lock the doors. And I've kind of told him the same thing. Like, you know, if somebody comes up and asks to like, you know, borrow your phone or, you know, to, you know, help them with something like that's a red flag. You're, you're a 12 year old kid. They don't need, they don't need your help. Trust me. If, yeah. if their last resort is a 12 year old kid, so they need to figure something else out with their life. Right. <laughs> so yeah. Especially if there are like, there are other people around, you know, yeah, that's a big thing. I mean, maybe if you're in the middle of absolutely nowhere and someone's like, I need, can I use your phone? Like maybe that's legit. But yeah. if you're like, they're in like a parking lot, the supermarket. Yeah. There's no reason for that guy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially yeah. you could just walk inside. So, yeah, I think right. it's just, you know, being, uh, you know, being a little bit more like balanced with it all. But also, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, there's been a lot of conversations around like safetyism and kids growing up way too protected and stuff. And, you know, I don't want to set my kid up for that. I need him to know, you know, I don't want him to be just constantly paranoid that the world is just <laughs> out to get him. But, um, but yeah, so there uh, you you work with a few people, uh, teachers, coaches, if you will, uh, and they they taught you things. They taught you how to do, you know, they gave you some homework assignments and stuff. One of my favorites was uh, Georgie. Uh, and so I want everybody to read the book, but I do want to like touch on some like tricks that you've learned. So one of them is like icebreakers and you like talked about it, like just doing it randomly in different places, like even at like a hot dog stand and stuff to, to practice. So someone's listening, they want to practice this stuff. What are, what are some easy ways where people don't have to be so afraid to maybe sparking up a conversation that you yeah. found? The big thing is if you're in public, um, where, whatever you're doing is going to provide you with something to talk about. So you can, you know, if you're watching a street performer, if you're in line at the supermarket, whatever, you can talk about being in line at the supermarket, you can talk about the street performer. Like you're already linked, right? There's this term um, triangulation in urban studies. Um, that's that, that's like, it's a little triangle. It's you and this person and you're looking at something together. You can comment on it and then you can kind of leave it in their, in their court to comment too. And then you can just listen to them and, and then just start talking. Like that tends to work pretty well, that sort of triangulation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Georgie Nightingale, who's the head of this group, Trigger Conversations, who was, who was pretty brilliant, had a lot of great techniques. Um, you know, one of them would be to take us, you know, if this is more on a social occasion sort of context, but to take a, a standard boilerplate opener and invert it. So instead of saying, what do you do, which is a, a conversation, you know, an opener that makes everyone die inside when they hear it, because it, yeah. it means that this person's not putting any effort into it. And they're not interested in you. That's why they're asking this terrible question. Yeah. Um, Georgie asks, like, what would you like to do more of? which is great, which cuts right to the heart of who the person is. And it signals to the person that you're actually interested, yeah. you know, instead of being like, oh, you're an accountant. Amazing. Is that like, how long have you been doing that for? When you ask someone what they would like to do more of, then they'll tell you about, tell you about themselves. And that's when real conversations can happen when you're not just on the script, like just yeah. asking dumb, mindless questions back and forth. We've all been stuck in those loops. At, at and you just kind of zone out because it's like, yeah, you're it's not like, really listening because yeah. it sucks. And like, you're, when you ask a bad question, you're getting a bad answer and it, you know, it, it starts to self reinforce, um, in a way, but breaking those scripts becomes really important. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, you can, you, you just have to get, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be kind of gross personal, but like, try to be a little more specific. You know, if they're, if they have a pair of glasses that you like, just say like, you know, but you know, can, do you mind if I ask you where you got your glasses? I'm looking for a pair of glasses myself. I really like those. And then really listen to what they say. 
Um, mm-hmm. Because oftentimes, as long as you're not being creepy about it, people are flattered by by a bit of that sort of attention. Just being like, "Hey, man, I really like your headphones. Like, those. Are, how do they work for you?" You'd be like, "Oh, okay, cool." Mm-hmm. And then they'll tell you how they work, but you'll get a little taste of what they're like, what motivated them to get these headphones, and then you start to see the person, right? And mm-hmm. that's that's how it starts to work. Um, in contexts where it's not the norm to talk to strangers. Georgie had this great thing called a preframe, which is just acknowledging out of the gate that you know you're violating a social norm, right? Because when when you do, the, you know, if you started talking to someone on the subway, their first thought is going to be they're they're going to be wary at first. They're going to think maybe there's something wrong with this person. Yeah, maybe, they're they threat, want maybe they something, want something. Yeah. yeah, or they just don't understand that this is not how we behave. We're we're on the tube in London. This is not what people. This is not what is done. You know. Yeah. But by acknowledging that you're aware that you're breaking the norm. Um, that ends up reassuring people enough to, to facilitate a conversation. So just being like, look, I know we're not supposed to talk to people on the subway, but can I just say, I, I like your glasses, you know, I've been in the market myself, that sort of thing. Yeah. And it shows that you are like a full person, that you have willpower, you have awareness, you have intelligence, and that gets you part of the way there. You know, mm-hmm. that'll, that's like a, a good warm up sort of thing. Um, I like that a lot. And then, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, we, we can talk about small talk a little bit, but we hate small talk. Everybody hates small talk because hate they think it. yeah. it's, it's evidence that the person you're talking to is a bore, right? Either yeah. a bore or they don't care about you. And, and, um, and the reason why is because we don't know what small talk is and we don't know how to use it. Mm. Um, it's not the conversation. It's like the gateway to a conversation. Small yeah. talk is a way to triangulate with the other person to show that you're in the same space. You're not a threat. You can make eye contact. You can chat a little bit. Um, and then to kind of give you a way to find something in common that you can talk about. As long as you get out of that stage as quickly as you can, it's really effective. Because if you walked up to someone cold and then asked them a personal question, they're going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, you need that preliminary step to be like, okay, we're here. We're calm. No one is scratching each other or biting each other. No one's screaming at anyone. No one's wielding a claw hammer. Like, okay, I can be reasonably assured that this is, that I'm physically safe here. I'm talking to this person. Okay, now, now we can get into something more interesting. And that's when you can get into openers. Like, what would you like to do more of? What would you like to do less of? Those sorts of things. There's a guy named Paul Ford, who's like a tech CEO. And uh, Paul had this great approach, which was when he was at a cocktail party, you would, he would ask the, what do you do question? And then whatever they answered, he would go, gee, that sounds really hard. And then yeah, you no, get an the museum story. story. The museum, yeah, the museum story, story was that you tell is a fantastic. I'm like, I like this strategy. Right. Yeah, you can really do it. It's great. It's great. Um, but just acknowledging that the other person is a person, acknowledging that you're interested, it, you know, showing that you think that they are worth talking to, which again, is kind of, it's kind of sucks that it, we have to, we have to like become conscious of that to be like, other people are humans. Like we are amazing. Um, they have things to say. But you just need to get through that that preliminary stage of small talk to get to the good stuff. And then, you know, my experience, I talked to so many people for this mm-hmm. book, um, was it always went somewhere different than you expected it to. It was always surprising, you know, as long yeah. as you just let them talk and didn't step on them and didn't correct them and didn't, you know, judge them or offer advice or, you know, anything like that. Didn't try to make it all about you. If you just follow the conversation and follow them where they want to go, you end up in some extraordinary conversations. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's nuts. It, it, you, you talk about, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, this experience, like holding up a sign and like having people come up and talk to you and like, and, and here's the thing, like, you know, me with a mental health background, people pay therapists a lot of money. And a lot of times it's, it's just a therapist 
asking open-ended questions and then just listening. And the person, like, hell, I've done therapy. And I'm like, shit, I did, I helped myself more than you helped me because right. I'm ta- sitting there talking with it. And a lot of people just want to be listened to. And a lot of people, you know, we, you know, so many of us were, were sitting in our own head, like, oh, none of my friends or none of my family cares about me and stuff. So it's like, hell yeah, if I come across a stranger who's just willing to listen, but, um, you know what's here's here's something hilarious, Joe. So I just finished your book the other day because I'm like, okay, interviews coming up. Let me finish the last few chapters, and uh, and yeah, and like there's so many tips and solutions and like advice in the uh, towards the end. But just yesterday, I was talking with my girlfriend because my family wants me to come out to California, and it would be in a, a situation with a bunch of family I haven't seen since I was a kid. And I was just telling her, I'm like, ah, oh, I don't want to do the whole small talk thing. I don't want 50 people to say, oh, what do you do? How old's your kid? Oh, do you have, uh, you know, all the normal stuff. And now we're talking, I'm like, what the, what the hell? I just finished Joe's book. I have strategies for this. And I, again, I love the, uh, oh, wow, that must be hard. Because like the idea behind it is like everybody, no, no matter what we do, we think like, oh, this, this job has terrible aspects. It sucks. Right. And we often think that our job is more difficult than others, but everybody has some pain in the ass point at their job. Did, have you tried that more often, like than, uh, than the museum guard story that you, you talk about in there? Um, and, and if you want, cause I don't want to spoil the story. I, I loved it, but, uh, uh, yeah. What, what, what's hard about being a museum guard too? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I went to the, I guess I was at the Met in New York for that. And, uh, I was just, you know, I was walking around and I was just noticing things and I was trying to think of what I could say, like, what, what, what could you say to a museum guard? Right. Who is just has a really interesting position where they, they spend their days in the presence of like incredible beauty, but they're not really human to people, right. They're just kind of like furniture in a way. Like it's very rare that people talk to a museum security guard. Yeah. And I ended up doing it at a show, um, a few years ago where I just chatted with someone um, about the way people were behaving at the show. And it was great because they do like, they, all they do is watch all day long. So they end up being like phenomenally good at telling you about human behavior and stuff like that and pretension and all kinds yeah. of stuff and, and art galleries and, and museums. Um, but I just wanted to know if people touch the paintings. <laughs> so I was like, do people touch the paintings? And that got right through because it was specific. I was genuinely interested and the guy was just like all the time. <laughs> And he's just like, like no one had ever asked him this before. And it was just the bane of his existence was people touching the paintings. Yeah. Um, and then I chatted with him a little bit about like, you know, what the job was like and everything. And he was great. He really lit up, you know, he was standoffish at first. Um, but I, we mm. had a really good conversation and I learned something about museums and doing it. Yeah. Um, the, the, you know, asking people what's hard about their job is I found really valuable or at least acknowledging the difficulty of jobs that, that a lot of people don't give a lot of thought to like service jobs. Right. Oh, so like yeah. a cashier in a supermarket or something, um, which sucks. Those jobs are really hard. Right. And we Especially just right like, now, like the people who have to tell oh, God, guests, yeah. like people coming in to wear a mask and then you see all these viral videos and it's like, bro, yeah, it's a hard job, yeah. but a lot of people don't, they don't give it a lot of thought. It doesn't necessarily mean they're bad people. It just means that they don't give it a lot of thought. So I remember one time I was in this, this is awful whole foods in my neighborhood. Um, that is just overrun. And it's overrun with like a very specific type of like affluent bourgeois bohemian yeah. Um, yeah. or bu- yeah, bourgeois bohemian, I guess is the term, um, whose social graces are terrible, right? Like their, their social skills are pretty bad. I don't know if there's anyone who's more socially inept than that particular group of people. And I'm surrounded by those people. Yeah. Um, so anyways, like I was in the Whole Foods one day and it was just a riot scene. Like it, I, I joke in the book that it felt like the last plane out of Casablanca. It was chaos. And so I noticed in this mob that one of the cashiers is really trying to talk to people 
Um, and she's not wasting time. She's not being a nuisance. She's like joking with people, talking to people as she's checking them out. She's very efficient. She's very good at her job. Um, and no one wanted to talk to her. And people just looked at her like she was crazy and no one would engage with her. And everyone was staring at their phones. And so um, when I got up there, I picked her line and I was, yeah, I get up there and, and I was like, uh, I was like, you know, they should give you combat pay for working at this place on a Sunday. This is a nightmare. And she goes, you know what I would really want is a therapist in the back room. And I was like, well, what would you want the therapist to tell you? And she goes, that these are not your friends and this is not your fault. So you have this person who's like really trying to connect and really trying to give people a good experience, right? Yeah. Um, and she's just not being treated like a human being. Um, and, you know, I, I, that line really stayed with me. You know, the effort she was making and the rejection that she was experiencing was really poignant. And it spoke to how hard that job is. Um, yeah. And so I always like, I, you know, this, I hope this doesn't come across as like patronizing or something, but I always talk to cashiers and people in service jobs now and, and, you know, without being fawning or anything, just recognize that this is a, this is a difficult job. Yeah. Um, I know it is. And I know you're accustomed to being treated like a service robot by a lot of people, but like we can have a little moment of connection and I can show that I, that I'm empathetic, that I know what it is. And maybe you can tell me something, you know, there was, there was a kid in a, a little market, in my neighborhood, she's probably, you know, teenage, teenage girl um you know she's black so different different age different race and i went on this jag when i was doing the book where when people asked me how i was i would actually answer the question you know which we never do everyone's just like fine how are you fine right no yeah. one cares. no one's really asking so i was like all right i'm gonna i'm gonna answer specifically and see where it goes and so this kid asked me how i'm doing and i was like you know to be honest with you i'm, I'm pretty worn out like my kid kept me up all night last night and she looks at me this is like a teenage girl and she just goes it'll get better <laughs> I love it. I love that. And like, so what could I, I could have had, you know, I, that was the interaction I had, which took the exact same amount of time as it would have, if I just stood there, Yeah, it didn't slow anything down. Uh, and it was wonderful. It was like this, this great little moment of connection. It just took very little effort. It just took the recognition of the humanity of the person that I was in the company with. And she was, she was fantastic. She had a, she had a kid, a kid sister. That's why she had the uh, wisdom yeah. to tell me that, that it was getting better. Like her kid sister was getting a little older now it was, you know, my kid at that point was like three. And she was like, yeah, it'll get better. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, yeah. And, and yeah, to your point about, you know, service people, like, I don't know if it's cause I've grown up in Las Vegas for most of my life. I've been here since I was like 10 and we're a major service city. So I know a lot of people who work in service. Like hell, like one of my best friends is a manager at a bar. Uh, you know, his wife is like a manager at like a restaurant off the strip. You know what I mean? Like, so, uh, you know, even one of my friends who moved to Florida, he's a hotel manager now. Right. So I know a lot of people in it, you know, when I was younger, I was like a valet. So I did it, but, but I don't know if that's just helped me empathize a little bit more, but I, I look at him. I'm like, God, this, this has to suck. Yeah. And especially if I see someone getting a lot of crap from customers like i try to just say something nice you know just like hey you're doing good it's all right, right. I or, always, yeah I, I end up behind that that jerk and uh when that transaction's over i'll just walk up to whoever's working there and be like how's it going yeah, <laughs> yeah just like jokingly. and a friend of mine like just because service people are taking such a beating right now because everyone just forgot how to be in public yeah um a, like my oldest friend went to a dunkin donuts in massachusetts and um he tried what i always do which is just being like you know, how you doing? Good. How are you? And then just saying like people behaving themselves today, uh, which I find is a really good opener and it's, it's, it tends to be a lot of fun. Um, and he asked that of a woman working at Dunkin' Donuts and she just burst into tears Gee, um, and people yeah. were awful. Like people were awful to her. Um, and so she got to talk to him about how hard this was and he listened and, uh, and it was great. And I remember he texted me, it was like, this woman started crying when I asked her that question. I was like, it's, you know, this is good though. It's good that 
she's that move. I mean, it's a, it's an indictment of the time for sure that she's so moved that someone took even a slight interest in her. Um, but it's good. It's good that like, you know, out of all these people who are just treating her like crap all day, one person recognized that she's a person and this is our job, you know, it's, it's valuable. Yeah, for sure. Uh, at the time of recording this, I, I'm doing a whole week of like psychology and mental health and stuff like that. And so many people, you know, suffer in silence. And sometimes that's all it takes, right? It's just somebody just, you know, asking you how you're doing. A lot of people don't have that. So, you know, like your friend doing that and her being able to cry like that, that might have made her day. You know what I mean? But, yeah, yeah. but you know, uh, a, a few more questions for you, Joe, but here's mm-hmm. what I'm wondering. So me and you, both dudes, right? And when I'm thinking about this, I'm listening to your book and I'm like, okay, talk to strangers. And you just mentioned like talking with, you know, a young woman or whatever, like my fear is that I'm going to come off creepy. All right. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I don't know for, for people listening who want to start doing this, like, I don't know, should we start like for guys, like, should we start just with like men until we get more comfortable? Like, do we feel it out? Or, or maybe you could share some of your experience. Like, so people like, you know, you're, 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 guy with like a kid uh and uh are you married mm-hmm. yep. right so you're married kid stuff like that so you're not you're not very threatening i'm guessing but but how do you how do you deal with that because i'm i assume they were across your mind like oh my god am i gonna seem like i'm a creep hitting on this person or gonna you yeah. know whatever how do we it's, how a, do we it's do a, a huge question so you know one of the things that i was very mindful of going into this is that i wasn't gonna generalize from my experience because I couldn't go out and be like, I'm a you know straight white guy in America. This worked great for me. Therefore, it's going to work great for everyone because <laughs> these interactions are going to be more complicated for other people. They're going to yeah. be complicated for young women. They're going to be complicated for members of minority groups. For sure, Th- those are going to be potentially more challenging, right? Um, there's the chance that those could go pear-shaped in a way that I wasn't necessarily my experience. So I made a point of talking to a lot of people who advocate for talking to strangers, um, black people, white people, men, women, um, just to get their perspectives too. So, you know, from my perspective, I'm very aware of a couple of things. One is the creep factor um, that someone's going to think I'm hitting. But if I'm talking to a woman that she's going to think I'm hitting on, it's, it's not going to be the case with like an older woman who, and again, older people are fantastic to talk to. Generally. Oh, yeah. Um, and they're also no one ever wants to talk to. It's horrible, you know, and they have great stories and they have a lot of wisdom. Yeah. Um, but if I'm talking to someone who's younger, um, you know, I just have to, you, you maintain a, a distance, right? You don't like sneak up on someone. You don't do it at night. You don't do it yeah. when no one else is around. Um, you show that you're respectful and that you're curious about whatever it is you're talking about. Um, and the initial reaction is going to be wariness and that, that wariness is completely justified because there's like, you know, they put up with a whole young women in particular put up with a whole category of harassment that I do not have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so it's that it's, it's being sincere. It's being genuine. Um, it's, you know, like just showing that you are, you have self-control that your, you know, your interest is not carnal interest. You're genuinely interested in the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they, if they are not interested in talking, like don't press too hard, you can just, you know, go away. Like, you don't have to be too aggressive about it or anything like that. Um, I'm very aware of that sort of stuff for sure. Um, that's a big thing. So just, you know, learning, becoming very aware of how you're coming across, Yeah. Um, which I think it's sort of the privilege of straight white guys to not really have to consider that that much, like historically, yeah. matter, you know, um, it was sort of the other person's like the other person's concern, how you are coming across, but to be very mindful to like, to watch the effect that you're having on a person to see if they are interested in, are they making eye contact? Mm. Are they sort of uncomfortable? Like, you know, be mindful of the effect you're having on someone as a white person talking to like possibly talking to a black person, be aware of like what that means. Be aware of how they might be perceiving you. Is this a threat? Are they comfortable with this? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's really, I think all that is really important. 
and but the 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 good thing is like once you get practice, once you do it enough, you do get better at putting people at ease. Uh, you do yeah. get a better get better at signaling that you're not a threat, that you're not gross, that you are just interested and you're like a decent person to talk to. Um, yeah, you know, but you you definitely have to be very mindful, for sure. But you know, for women who might be interested, interest listening into this too. Oh yeah, that's I spoke a to a lot of yeah. you know a lot of the people you know interestingly who advocate for this and who study this are women, and a lot of them identify as introverts. Um, and so I asked them how they feel safe doing this. And, um, most of them were like, yeah, just don't do it in a bar necessarily. Don't do it at night. Like find a place where there are people around where it's well lit. Um, and then you can do it like that. And most of them had, had good, you know, most of them had good experiences. Um, they were, they got pretty good at just like making it clear that they were not interested sexually in any way. in the person that they were talking to, you know, that their interest was a human interest, that their interest was you know, based in whatever they were experiencing at that point. Um, not to be dismissive of like people's fears for their safety, but, mm -hmm. um, but I did talk to a lot of people and that was the take, you know, one woman who's kind of a younger woman said that she loves talking to strangers because of all the benefits that I get into in the book, but she does it with a partner, right? She'll do it with her, with her, um, you know, the man that is her partner. They'll do it together like that. Uh, and that, that okay. ensures it's safe. But you get to talk to people and, and, you know, um, and maybe it's even less complicated for the person you're talking to because they understand what the dynamic is here. Um, those yeah. sorts of things, you know, go a long way, I think, to helping a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I, I hadn't even thought about that. Like women doing this. I, I actually just talked with a, a evolutionary psychologist. He studies like uh, David Buss. He studies the sexual psychology of like, you know, men and women, stuff like that. But there's this bias men have that women are more attracted to them than they are, or they're sending yeah. off signals. And, and like, that's something, you know, so I'm like, oh, geez, women got to deal with that. I like that idea of, you know, being with somebody else and stuff like that, because women shouldn't be limited to not benefiting from talking to strangers and and yeah and you, and you mentioned you have a daughter and stuff like i i'm only trying to imagine like i like when we didn't know the sex of my son i'm like oh my god if it's if this is a little girl like i am gonna have to be on high alert at all times <laughs> you know but uh yeah. yeah i think those are definitely some good strategies and you know I, I i think about this a lot and i didn't put this in the book but I, i've been thinking about it as a result of a lot of the conversations I'm having mm. is that our perception of humanity is pretty negative right like we do tend to think highly of ourselves as like a species yeah. um we are a very successful species even though we're destroying our own environment yeah. um but we do tend to be pretty pessimistic and and i think the more that we interact with people the more that we think our 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 perception of people is derived from um like social media in the media Right. Yeah. So much of what we think about people as like the category, which is everybody, um, is colored by social media and the media. And those things are negative. The incentive structure of those things is negativity. Mm -hmm. um, so the more you interact, the more you experience humanity through Twitter or something mm -hmm. like that, the worse you're going to feel about humanity because it's not humanity at its best. It is an engine for connection. It can be used very well, but on the whole, it's pretty negative. And so as people withdraw from the world, as they withdraw from the company of strangers, they start taking in only negative data. And I think mm. that data is incomplete data in my experience. And I'm not, you know, I'm a pretty skeptical, cynical guy. I've been a journalist for a long time. Like I said, yeah. it's my business. Um, I've never felt more optimistic than I did when I spent two years just talking to people. And the way I think about it is that I've been gathering more complete data on what humans are like. Yeah. Um, and the, the, you know, you look at crime numbers and stuff like that, like the vast majority of people are fine. Yeah. Um, and, and oftentimes they can be like delightful and fascinating and wonderful. Um, but if I didn't, if, if my only interface with the world was through social media and the media, I would think that people are absolutely irredeemable. 
Yeah. Right? Cause that's the perception that you get when you can, when that's the data you take in. Yeah. Um, and I like that idea a lot. And so I think for, for my daughter, I want her to get a check on that pessimism. Mm. Um, I want a check cause you know, she's gotta be on social media. It's gonna happen. She's gonna be watching a lot of TVs and that stuff, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of it's great, but a lot of it's negative. I want her to be able to balance that perception with um, first person experience with other people. I think it's really important. Yeah, I, I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah, I definitely agree. Like uh, just through my own experience talking with people, you start to see that, you know, a lot of this stuff that you're reading because, you know, uh, especially with media moving to the digital age and you have to make things sensational and clickbaity and stuff like that, you're seeing the most polarizing, insane things. And, you know, uh, it's not nearly as frequent, right? Like I'm always trying to remember, especially since being locked inside, trying to remember how many people there actually are. So when like you see this one story, I'm like, okay, like how, how prevalent is this really right like because yeah. you for a week they can focus on one story and you're you, you just start, your brain starts going like this must be everywhere you know so I've been mm -hmm. I've actually been talking with authors lately when they cover a certain topic I'm like okay how big is this is this big is this bad and it's funny too because uh when you talk even when you talk and I'm sure you know this when you talk to a journalist or when you talk with an expert you would talk with a like like I was just talking with somebody the other day about something on the podcast and, and she was like oh no it's not it's not that bad, but it's something we should be aware of. And I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, oh, right. okay. Because yeah, when somebody yeah. writes an entire book, an entire article, entire whatever, you're like, whoa, this must be, you right. know, important. It's funny. I had a conversation with someone the other day about the, you know, the kid on United Airlines that they had to duct tape to the, to his chair, uh, which is <laughs> such a hilarious story and horrible too. I think like, flight attendant's a tough job and it's even tougher now. Yeah. But you know, I was in kind of a pessimistic moment and I was just like, man, people would just suck today. Like, what is the deal? How come, how come everyone forgot how to behave in public? Like they forgot how to behave in restaurants. They forgot how to behave on planes. And my buddy was just like, no, that was just like the, the one guy. Like there were, you know, probably 350 people on that plane. And then I went back and I watched the video again. And there's this moment where he starts threatening to tell his grandpa yeah, that yeah, they're mistreating yeah. him. And you can hear the whole plane burst out laughing. And I was like, the rest of the people on those on that plane, those are my people. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they, they like, know it's ridiculous. It's like, this is ludicrous. And they all think it's hilarious. Um, to not generalize that one guy into an entire population of human beings, but instead to like look at the numbers and try to push back against the very human impulse to generalize from from like, mm -hmm. you know, a small number of things. You know, if you have you see a news story and you're like, people are trash. Based on the news story, yeah. you do have to like, you have to discipline yourself a little bit. You have to push back against that. And for me, a great way to do it is just by talking to random people. It's like a random sampling and, and yeah. the data is better data than you get from social media and media generally. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, on that, one of the, one of the last questions I want to ask you, like kind of going back to the polarization and everything like that, because, you know, Braver Angels, for example, like, I think you mentioned in there that they have chapters in like every state, you know, they have a convention and stuff like that gives me hope because I, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, cool. There are people who recognize this is an issue. They they're taking some kind of active step. Like, like just to get me to like drive down the street is like big, right? So if people are like going to this, you know, or for example, you know, I I, I got sober in 2012 and you know, going to 12 step meetings, you know, I'm like that, mm -hmm. that's something I have to take time out of my day. So sure. One of the one of the things I wanted to ask you, you talk about this a little in the book, right? But when it comes to polarization, like did you, you know, did you see any kind of patterns with the type of people who actually went? Because when I hear that, 
Like, I'm always like, okay, okay, Braver Angels, you guys do something great, but how do I get this person in there, right? Like when I'm looking at addiction, right? How do I, like, okay, cool, rehab is great. 12-step programs are great, but the hard part is getting them from point A to point B to experience the greatness. So uh, is, is there any kind of, you know, uh, characteristics you see of people who are going there, or do you see any strategies to get people to want to go there rather than just like mm -hmm. having black and white thinking like, no, the other side will never change. I don't want to change my opinion, blah, right? Yeah. So how do we, how do we do that? Yeah, I think there was a sincere patriotism there. <clears throat> which I would uh, differentiate from like nationalism, you know, so like a, yeah. a genuine love of country that isn't just a love of country that's based on hating people who are not in the country or hating people who are pushing back against your perception of the country. You know, I think they were, I think they were patriots. Um, the scaling question is really hard. How do you scale something like this? And they, they're open about that too, being like, how do we get past a point where we're just adding like, oh, we just added five more people, you know, like you need yeah. to add a lot of people. This thing needs to be much bigger in order to really move the culture. Um, the way they're doing it is, is going through, you know, they have a harder time getting conservatives than they do liberals. Liberals, you know, I, it's a stereotype, but they tend to be the ones who want to connect um, with others, whereas conservatives tend to be much more group-minded about kind of protecting the group, right? Mm. And those two things should be together. That's good to balance those two things. Having someone who's group-minded and having someone, it's like yeah. what Robert Putnam calls bridging capital and, um, and bonding capital. So bonding capital is like, we'll do everything we can to hold our group together and protect our group. Bridging capital is let's expand our group, right? Mm -hmm. Any one of those, if it becomes dominant, becomes a problem. You want to yeah. balance. So they're starting to work through um, churches, stuff like that, religious organizations, organizations that, that Republicans and conservatives trust that will vouch for this organization because yeah, okay. there is a lot of suspicion there. Like a lot of people do think it's kind of like a kumbaya thing or it's like a liberal indoctrination camp, you know, like you hear a lot of that. Um, because the aim is like, it's liberal. It's not, you know, it's, it's like classically liberal, not Democrat, but liberal. Right. Mm -hmm. So like getting people together, like getting people to talk, those are liberal values. It's mm -hmm. democratic in a way. Um, but getting small D democratic, but going through some of these trusted organizations to, to vouch for this group and to try to steer people in, um, that's what they're looking to do to try to just get more people to overcome the wariness and to get more people to, to join mm -hmm. on. Um, and it's hard, but they're, they're actually growing very quickly and they're doing a lot more online conversations now too, mm. which we don't have a lot of research on, but they're, they're, they say they're having a lot of luck with it because it's great. Cause it, it, it fixes the geography problem. Um, yeah. you don't have to be in the same space. You can just be mm. at home, but you can connect with someone from the other group from your home, which is, that's a way that'll, I think, make it a little easier for the group to grow. Yeah. I, I yeah, those are, yeah. sounds like they, they got some ideas and I, I dig that because like, for example, I, I go out of my way since I read so much, I go out of my way to be like, okay, like I know there's certain people, you know, authors who've written books where I'm like, I know ideologically, I don't agree with anything you say, but I will sit down and read your entire book to give you, you know, to give you your time to argue your thing. Like a book is like, here, you can have a one-sided argument and I'll sit down. Like, whether it's like, you know, I've, I've read, you know, uh, uh, like, uh, David, uh, not what, what's his name? Why am I forgetting his name? David, uh, he used to work for TYT. Doesn't matter. Uh, and my dad sad. Uh, there was a guy who uh, wrote a book about, uh, you know, a moral argument for fossil fuels. Anyways, I do this and I try to, you know, understand, but I also try to think about like, who else is going to do this? Right. It's, Cause it's hard to like, here, sit down and read this entire book. It's hours or days. Like I, I listen to audio books at two X speed and I get through them pretty quick, but 
to get somebody to dedicate that much time. So I really want to get people together to hear other ideas, have a better understanding where people are coming from. Sometimes I read a book. I'm like, I still don't agree with you, but I can see where you came from. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But that, that kind of uh, uh, trans transitions into my last question. I've been thinking a lot about like curiosity, right? Cause I've tried to calm down my own polarization. I've tried to talk with more people. Um, one of the reasons I read so much is just, I'm curious. What's helped me a lot is, you know, like you're, you're, you're a stranger to me. I've done like 70 episodes of this podcast so, so far with different people. And it's just this genuine curiosity. So I'm curious, you know, like, you know, you're a journalist, so you, you have some curiosity. So can you like, what, how does curiosity play a role into wanting to talk to strangers, get these things going? And have you come across anything that could help people get curious? Because that, that's kind of what keeps a conversation going too. It's like, mm-hmm. I want to listen. I want to hear about your job or your struggles or what's going on, you know? So, so any tips you have for people on curiosity, I would love to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. For, for one thing, I, I think curiosity will save us. I think we're suffering from a lack of curiosity about one another right now. Um, I think it's really important. The, um, let me think. I think when you're curious about someone, it shows that you recognize them as fully human, right? And you have faith that your curiosity will be repaid. That's mm-hmm. sort of the big thing, right? Like to be curious about someone is to show that you think that this is going to be worth it. This is worth the effort. This is worth the time. And they see this, you know, and they're, they're you know, they can be flattered and they can be honored by that. Um, I think the only way you can train yourself to be curious is by experiencing the upside numerous times. So that's how faith occurs, obviously, right? So if you if you take the leap and you're like, I'm going to be curious about this person, I'm going to be genuinely open, openly curious, and I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to listen and I'm not going to talk to myself and I'm just going to see where this goes. And when you do that enough, you see that it goes tends to go well. The research backs this up too. Like the threat mm-hmm. of projection is way overhyped. Um, and when your curiosity is repaid enough times, you'll internalize it. It will become a, a matter of habit. It'll kind of change the way you think. And, um, and that's really valuable. I mean, that opens you up to new experiences, but it, it's also good for the other people that, that they're being taken seriously, that people are interested in them. That helps them feel more connected to the place they live. It helps them feel more mm-hmm. included in the world. Um, it is kind of a form of hospitality in a way. Yeah. Um, but it's just practice, you know, it's, it's practice and the realization that it pays off and that'll get you there. But I, yeah. I think it has to happen. It has to happen. Yeah, for sure. And, and the guy I was thinking of Dave Rubin, that's, who it was. <laughs> that's the book. Yeah. I read. But, but yeah, like, like what you're saying. And I think that's, you know, as, as you were talking about curiosity, I think that's why I'm able to talk with people who have different political views or, you know, whatever, because I come from a place of, of curiosity and cur- like curiosity is like the opposite of judgment. And I actually learned that mm-hmm. in, you know, working with meditation teachers, right? Like just on inner work, right? So I come and I'm like curious, like, like no matter what their political views, like if they're like, no, no immigrants or no, uh, you know, the abortion law or whatever, like, and just being like, hey, like, why, why do you think that? Like where, where you know what I mean? And, you know, they've even proven it's, uh, helpful for people who deny science, right? And just ask them like, huh, yeah. where, do you, where do you think that? And and like I said, those conversations I've had online where people are like, hey, thanks for having a conversation. I'm curious, I'm curious. I'm like, yeah. what, what led you to this? Is there a source out there that I don't know about? And, you know, whatever. And people, people appreciate that, especially during a time where a lot of people aren't curious and immediately judging you or calling you names or whatever. It's like, hey, yeah. why, do you, why do you believe what you this do? Is- it's like a magic trick too, where, <laughs> you know, when, when people feel under threat, <clears throat> they experience something called defensive processing, which is you just, you become impervious to new information. 
right? You circle the wagons. And so when you feel that you're being attacked, you will not receive that information. So if you want someone to listen to you, you need them to not feel that you're threatening. You need them to not feel like they need to be defensive against you. And the way to do that is to be curious about them. So you get to learn, you'll get a more nuanced, you know, understanding of what their stance is, which is valuable to you, but they will also um, be more open to listening to what you say. Right. If the sense of threat is there, none of this works. The whole thing breaks down. No one will listen. But if you do demonstrate some curiosity, I think you'll be really surprised by people's willingness to consider your side of things mm -hmm. as long as you're not shouting at them. Um, yeah. And that's when connection can happen. And that's when people can actually develop a more nuanced idea of, of who the opponent is. You know what I mean? Um, and then yeah. maybe you can change minds. But, but changing minds on big issues isn't necessarily the short game here. The connection is the short game because, you know, from a, in, a, in a political arena, maybe you like each other enough to like fix a pothole. Maybe you like each other enough to like put up some new street signs. And then you maybe you build a, build a little trust in fixing those potholes and you can move on to something bigger. Like it really is, yeah. it's a rebuilding. It's going to be a national rebuilding effort. But it does start with curiosity and respect for sure. Without that, it's, it's going to be very difficult to resolve any of this stuff without force, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And if you end up making a sequel to a book, maybe that'd be a great place. Because I think journalists are naturally curious. You got to interview and talk to people and you got to you got to be curious because you got to, you know, your job is to write about them and you got to want to kind of know and, you know, and, and whatever. Like, I, I think, you know, the world would be a better place if we were just more curious about things. And that's why that's something I genuinely try to teach my son. But, but yeah, Joe, I, I appreciate you coming on because yeah, we, we spent, I could talk to you for five more hours, but, <laughs> uh, because I'm curious about you, but, but yeah, the book, the book is out. I loved it. So, uh, I actually listened to the audio, the audio version, but, uh, is it available everywhere? And for your work, the other stuff you're working on, like, where's the best place to find you connect with you, uh, and all that stuff. Yeah. So on. you can, you can get it anywhere. It's available everywhere. Um, if you are in another country, it's available in a lot of, a lot of other countries too. You can, I have a fairly bare bones website. That's just joecohane.net, J-O-E-K-E-O-H-A-N-E.net. And then I'm on Twitter too. Um, but my email is on my website. If anyone has any questions or anything, hit me up. I usually yep. reply. Yep. And that's how I got in touch with you. It was like Twitter yep. and email and, and all that. So I can vouch for you that it works. <laughs> so, yeah. So again, yeah, Joe, thanks so much for your time and and yeah i I'm, i hope we could do this again you can give me some more tips on talking to strangers once the world reopens and all that stuff. right 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 no it's a real pleasure talking to you chris it was a lot of fun and thanks for having me on all right everybody that was my conversation with joe cohane about his brand new book the power of strangers and i hope i hope you were sold i hope you were sold on how freaking beneficial it is to talk to strangers all right and I, i'll tell you i'll tell you there are many many, 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 many things that Joe has done or things in his book where I'm like, nope, right? But it's these it's these very little things. Like I didn't mention it, uh, you know, I, I don't think I mentioned it in this podcast. But anyways, something I try to do, you know, uh, we talked a little bit about like, you know, uh, talking with cashiers and things like that without being like patronizing. But like, here's a fun game I play at the DMV. When you go to the DMV, the like the the people who like, you and me who have to go to the DMV, we hate it. We're pissed, right? But so are the employees. So I have this little game that I play. Nobody knows about this game, okay? But I'm going to share it with all of you. A game I play is I try to make the person behind the counter at the DMV smile and or laugh, all right? Just a little fun game I play, you know? But but yeah, like you don't got to be like this, this person who runs around talking to strangers and starting all these conversations. I swear to you, it is these very 
very little things. It's just like this, like a little, a little comment that might brighten somebody's day, asking like one follow-up question, you know, um, we, you know, we, we have this tendency or maybe it's just me and people like me, but like when someone starts talking to me that I don't know, I get like frustrated and angry. Like, what the hell are you doing talking to me? I really try to work on that and engage with them, you know, just a little, like if I'm in a hurry or whatever, like, you know, I have an out and all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, like make sure you head down to the description, make sure you're following Joe, grab a copy of this book. And tomorrow's episode is great for this conversation too. All right. But yeah, if we want to work on our polarization and improve our own well-being and other aspects, start talking to strangers. Okay. But yeah. Uh, also head down to the description, make sure you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. I love talking with all of you, but I also share what books I'm reading, upcoming guests and all sorts of stuff. Um, I've been writing a lot. I'm working on some other projects and everything. So make sure you're following me at the rewired soul. Okay. Now, few things. I know you're sitting there, Chris. You're like, Chris, I want to help out the podcast. I don't got any money. Hey, welcome to the club. I just got laid off. I know what you're saying. Okay. Here are some absolutely free ways that you can help support the podcast. First way, make sure you're following the podcast. Follow, subscribe, no matter what platform you're listening on, Apple, Spotify, whatever. All right. Second way you can help support the podcast. It doesn't cost you anything. Share the episodes. Share this episode or any other episode that you're like, huh, that was pretty good. I think other people might like it. Share the crap out of that thing. All right. Lastly, take a few seconds, just a few, like you don't even have to write anything. Okay. Head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating. And if you want, leave a review. Okay. But all these things, all these things really help because it tells the algorithms, hey, podcast is all right. More people might enjoy it. So if you want to help your boy Chris out, if you want to help spread this word, but anyway, like, by the way, by the way, let me pause real quick. Cause I'm always telling you guys to do this stuff to help, you know, build this community and everything like that. But I'm going to pause real quick and just say, thank you to all of you listening to every single author who has come on here. Like we just started this in May. So we're like four, like three and a half, four months in, we are almost at 10,000 downloads, okay? Which is absolutely mind-blowing, all right? So all of us, like, killing it. So I appreciate all of you who are tuning in, you know, telling people about this podcast. Like, you know, I started this thing with a goal to have more conversations, find other people who are interested and like to learn. And, you know, I just, I love talking with authors about their books. As, as I'm reading all these dang things, I'm like, Hey, I got some questions, or I think, you know, this would be an interesting conversation. So thank you. We're, we're doing fantastic. All right. But yeah, lastly, some other ways to help support the podcast. I have self-published some books, uh, which you can get at the rewiredsoul.com. They're cheap. They're like five bucks a piece. Um, and you can also become a patron that's down below. And lastly, there is an affiliate link for better help online therapy. It's a service that I've personally used and I loved it. It helped me through a really difficult time in 2019. And it is online. It's affordable. You work with a licensed therapist and they even have a sliding scale if you don't have that much money. All right. So click on that affiliate link, check it out. It is very personalized where you'll find it'll match up with a therapist who like specializes in what you're dealing with, whether it's 
you know, trauma, depression, you know, whatever it is, like there's an in-depth questionnaire and it'll match you up with the right person. And my favorite part, being the introvert who doesn't like contra- uh, conflict that I am, uh, you can click a button and switch therapists if you don't like your therapist. Boom. It's pretty cool. So yeah, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy if that sounds good. And another huge thanks to Joe for taking the time to come on the podcast. Make sure you follow him and check out his book. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for sharing this. And yeah, I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. And check this out. Tomorrow, if you're an introvert, you're going to like the episode. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. That's all. That's a little teaser I'm going to give you. Okay, so make sure that you stay tuned. All right. So have a good one. And I'll see you next time.